this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Imagine it's around 25 years ago, right at the turn of the 20th century, Tap Lines listener. You're at SeaWorld San Diego, a sprawling complex of saltwater semi-captivity that Anheuser-Busch, the country's largest beer company, has owned for the past decade. But who cares whose place it is? You're just here because some guy who works for a brand you've only vaguely heard of invited you and 300 others to come to the compound and see some dolphins and drink some free beer. Is that weird? Oh, certainly. But hey, it's Y2K, baby. Anything goes. (laughs) Obviously, you're not actually there, but this did actually happen. It was part of AB's research and development strategy for a new beer it created to blunt Corona's rip-roaring success with the American drinking public in the 90s. That beer came in clear bottles, just like Corona, and bore a Mexican-sounding name derived from tequila and cerveza. Rolled out nationally in 1999, tequila burned bright for a hot minute before flaming out a few years later. It never seriously challenged Grupo Modelo's own clear-bottled golden goose for stateside Mexican lager supremacy, but that doesn't mean it didn't make an impact. Joining Taplines today is the guy behind that SeaWorld R&D gambit all those years ago, Edmundo Macias, the former brand manager of AB's homespun tequila line. These days, he's the director of marketing for Twang Partners, a San Antonio spice blender that makes, among other things, specialty beer and margarita salts. But... Back then, Macias was front and center for Tequiza's rapid rise and frustrating fall, and he contends that the brand actually paved the way for some of the beer industry's breakout successes that followed its discontinuation. I think I agree. It's Edmundo Macias, it's Tequiza, it's Anheuser Busch's Corona killer that wasn't, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome to the Tap Lines podcast. We have a very special guest today. It's our man, by way of San Antonio, joining us from all the way on the West Coast. Uh, We're on the East Coast, of course, Tap Lines listeners. I'm talking about my guest today, Edmundo Macias. Edmundo, thank you so much for being here, my friend. My pleasure, man. Nice to see you. Edmundo, where are you joining us from? Actually, I'm in Orange County today. I'm in Irvine, California, here for work. Uh, as I think I mentioned, uh, our company is based out of San Antonio, Texas, but we're out here to check on accounts as we begin to really uh, grow our business out here on the West Coast. Right on. So much that we have to talk about your current business, your former business, the way the two relate to one another. Uh, Edmundo, you, we're here today to talk about a beer that I think for many Taplines listeners needs a bit of introduction because though uh, true students of the beer industry, to real heads as they say, uh, are familiar with the brand that you managed and pioneered and steered to a brief, very exciting moment in Anheuser-Busch's portfolio right around the turn of the century. Many more, uh, many younger drinkers, you know, uh, those who came online, came on legal drinking age uh, uh, in the late aughts or or, uh, last decade in the teens, um, maybe not familiar with this brand that we're talk- we're here to talk about today. The brand, the beer, is Tequiza. Uh, Tequiza is a product that you worked on uh, during your long time at Anheuser-Busch. Why don't we just start with 
in your words, as someone who is maybe closer to it than, um, well, certainly than anyone else we've had on the show so far, uh, what was Takiza, Edmundo? Takiza was a thing that, in retrospect, I feel was certainly ahead of its time. Mm. It was a beer uh, that actually contained tequila in the flavoring. So back then there were restrictions in terms of blending, you know, spirits and, and, and beer and ready to drink, all that kind of stuff. But the way the brewery got around it, quite frankly, is pretty brilliant. The flavoring was made with uh, Orendane tequila. So that was a legal way to get around it. And it was a product that had like 5.5 alcohol. So a little higher than your average beer, certainly higher than Budweiser at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it also had agave in there, which it made it kind of sweet. So I guess the best way to describe it would be like a, a lighter version of a margarita beer. Uh, the name itself implied uh, tequila and cerveza. So combine those two words to come up with the name tequiza. And I know that name was developed by uh, the person who then was running the new product development department, Colleen Beckmeyer. That was her brainchild, the name. As far as the inspiration for the product, it really came from the competitive environment that was going on at the time. So for those of you who don't know, back then, uh, Grupo Modelo, Corona beer, basically. If you, if you don't mind me interrupting you real quick, Edmundo, I'm sorry to be rude, but let's just talk about the timeline to set the scene a little bit. I didn't yep. even, uh, normally we scroll our tap lines, time machine back uh, to the year in question, but I didn't start our episode that way because I was just so excited to start talking about Takiza. <laughs> but the year, the time frame we're talking about is late 90s into like Y2K area. I think Takiza, correct me if I'm wrong, starts rolling out in test markets in what, 97? Does that sound about right? Yeah, some really small test markets like New Mexico and, and other parts of the Southwest officially launched nationally February 1999. Okay. Just to give you perspective in terms of timing. Got it. Okay, so we're for anyone who's listening to uh, Edmundo describe what Takiza is and says, man, this product sounds great. I would drink this product. Uh, it sounds like it fits right in with the flavored malt beverage offerings that are out there on the market today or beer, uh, you know, flavored beer, which is coming on strong, fruited beers, et cetera, et cetera. You might have drank it today if it came out today, but we're talking about 26 years ago that it came, you know, that it first started testing in markets and then 24 years ago that it that it rolled out nationally. So that is the time frame that we're in. What's the landscape at that point, Edmundo? You, you, you started to talk a little bit about who, who the major players were and, and what, you know, milieu this beer was entering. Well, this was uh, pre, obviously, pre-Seltzers. There were some FABs out there at the time, you know, like Smirnoff Ice and those sort of things. I, one of the challenges were, you know, products like Zima had actually over time received a bad reputation. We didn't want to sure. be perceived as a Zima. We did want to, we were officially wanted to be called and classified as a beer. We didn't want to create this new category of, of something. We wanted to be a beer. And as I was mentioning, the inspiration really came from the fact that when Anheuser-Busch owned 30% of Corona, but didn't have the exclusive rights in the U.S. to distribute it, Mm. management, and by management, I honestly, I mean August Bush III, the old man. Three sticks. Three sticks. Yes, exactly. He wanted something to compete within the Mexican category. Obviously, the beer being brewed in the U.S. didn't give that credibility, but adding tequila to it did give it an instant connection to Mexico and gave it that credibility. And it was really created to compete with Corona, even though Anheuser-Busch owned 30% at the time. 
Yeah. And this is before, you know, for any of those budding beer history buffs listening, you might recognize Grupo Modelo in relation to Anheuser-Busch InBev, which acquires Grupo Modelo uh, in 2012 and then is forced to divest its U.S. rights in 2013. We are way upstream of that. We are mm-hmm. we are right around the turn of the century. So AB, a- pre-InBev, has a piece of Grupo Modelo but uh, but realizes with Corona coming on strong, they need they need an answer because they don't have distribution rights in the United States. How strong was Corona at that time, Edmundo? Uh, they were, you know, Corona. If you look at the the timeline of Corona, it started off really strong, and then it started to dip quite a bit. And I don't know if you remember the whole rumors about what was actually in the beer, urine. Yeah, yeah, they they were getting yes. smeared with. That's right. Good. Oh man, I right. forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so what was the, what was the deal with that? Someone someone just started a rumor. Maybe a competitor. Maybe someone was mad. Well, no. It turns out they did actually because it did affect sales so much that they did do a. a you know, F, I don't know if the FBI was involved, but it was kind of a very intense <laughs> investigation. And it turns out it was a competitor. They literally, at least, this, uh, urban myth is that a couple of these guys who worked for a competitor ordered Coronas at some bar, went to the bathroom, actually peed in it, brought it out, said, oh, my God, their beer tastes like urine. Yeah. And and it blew up from there. A, a real brain trust there. That's, that's yeah, the, the exactly. height of, of a sophisticated caper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it did affect uh, negatively affect the brand for a few years. And then it just started to bounce back. What I remember at some point they got to about a million barrels and that's when everybody started really paying attention to them again. And it just really Mm -hmm. took off from there. Mm -hmm. So this was going to be our answer to uh, Corona. And uh, again, the profile, it did already include the lime flavor in it, agave, which made it kind of sweet. Yep. And when we launched it in 99, uh, we had a lot of success to the point where I believe still to this day, it, w- it was the most profitable Anheuser-Busch brand that wasn't a line extension. So it wasn't, you know, Bud Light, you know, playing Bud off dry. Of Budweiser, yeah, Bud yeah, Dry, yeah, yeah. Bud Select. In terms of a standalone brand, at least at the time, it was the most profitable first-year brand that the brewery ever did. And I remember and it, it wasn't a lot because it, was re- it wasn't really a big national push. All we did was radio and outdoor in the top 14 markets, and that was mm-hmm. it. I want to read a quote from uh, in 2000, um, Brand Week, the, the trade publication, uh, had written about Tequiza, and they wrote, quote, Tequiza was launched cheap by AB standards and already has eclipsed number one craft beer brand Sam Adams in volume, putting it well on the way to one million barrels, close quote. So these are early days for Tequiza. Uh, this, you know, Corona uh, um, competitor, but signs are positive, right? Like you guys are, you, you said you, you did some marketing, but it wasn't this big national push and already it's getting that kind of buzz in trade publications. Tell me about those early signals. Like how, what did that feel like being in the middle of it? I assume you thought you you had a hit on your hands. Uh, we did. We were real confident. Uh, again, we kept hearing, one thing we kept hearing especially from women, is I don't normally drink beer, but I would drink this. A marketer's eyes light up, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, so the idea that, you know, we could target a whole new audience. Now, the downside, what we would hear, we would hear from men and women like, I like it, but I can't drink more than a couple, mm. right? So I, I don't remember if we talked about this in the past, but uh, we heard it so much. I, okay, we got to research this. We got to do some consumer testing, right? 
So at the time, Anheuser-Busch used to own SeaWorld. So what they did at the time, they invited our research folks. We conducted a big study of about 300 21 to 24-year-olds that we invited to SeaWorld. Now, I got to remember, this was the days before Uber and all that stuff. So we we had to make arrangements to pick them up and drive them home because the whole goal was for them to drink, you know, and party. Sure. So back a bunch then, of, like a bunch every, of tequiza, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every available cab, shuttle, taxi, limo, whatever we could get our hands on, recruited these folks, picked them up, brought them to this badass party at SeaWorld. Amazing food, DJ, the whole bit. And when you, it was, if I remember correctly, it's 300 people. And they each got a, there was three colored wristbands, the red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. So if you were red, for example, then you can only drink from that line. If you were white or blue, et cetera, you can only sure. drink from that line. And the three versions of the beer that were available were the original formula, one with less alcohol, because it was originally 5.5, and then one with less sweetener, less agave. And after they did this big study, they found that the group that drank the most were the folks that drank the one with less sweetener. So it was really the sweetness that was causing people to say, I can't drink more than a couple. Yep. So at that point, they made an adjustment to the formula and, and so on. Uh, so all signs were really positive. A couple of, I think the biggest mistake the brewery did at the time, and the reason why the brand doesn't exist anymore, is because that should have been the time when they made it a standalone brand, got a bigger budget, you know, do a legit national rollout, you know, sure. more marketing behind it. But instead, what they did, they kept it within the new product development group. Mm-hmm. So we had limitations on budget. So it was like, okay, if you spend money on Takiza to, you know, then you can't do uh, more of this other development stuff you're working on. So we had a very set limited budget. I really think that was the biggest mistake is when they, they didn't strike when, when the iron was hot. Uh, that should have been the time when they really accelerated, accelerated the gas, put in more marketing behind it, you know, but instead they really held back on the brand. They, they didn't give it its, its uh, due credit. Yeah. And again, they kept it in the new product uh, department. And then so consequently, limited funds to go forward. So that didn't help at all. What's going on in the company at this time? I mean, Bud Light, I'm trying to think of the history here. So Budweiser is obviously the flagship for many, many, many years. And then Miller, uh, with a bucket of Philip Morris money, comes out with Miller Light, the the original light beer from Miller, quote unquote, uh, in 1975. Augie Bush poo-poos it, says this is going to be a fad. I don't think so. I don't think so. But by 82, it's very obvious that it light beer is not just a fad. This is going to be a category. They push Budweiser light into production. Then in 82, 84, it turns into Bud Light. And then by the mid-90s, I mean, it's neck and neck with Miller Light, even though Miller had a big, you know, first mover advantage. How I say all that to say this, how much... How big of a deal was Bud Light at the company compared to how small of a deal Tequiza was? I mean, was it just a factor of like Bud Light sucking all the oxygen out of the room because it was such a juggernaut? Yeah. No, at that time, by the time Tequiza came out, Bud Light was already a huge brand. Yeah, yeah. Just to give you, just to give you an idea on marketing budgets, my budget on Tequiza, which to me today sounds a lot, uh, $25 million, but compared to Bud Light had $650 million for marketing, as did Budweiser. <laughs> Budweiser also had another $650 million. Yeah, market. yeah, yeah. So, but I will say that when I started with the company, uh, Bud Light, the challenge with, because Budweiser was, a, was the brand at the time, right? 
Sure. And distributors, you know, we work closely with the distributors and they'd build these huge Budweiser displays. We'd have to pay them an extra incentive to throw a couple of cases of Bud Light on the Budweiser display, right? Because <laughs> they were like, yeah, it's diet beer. It's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward, literally six, seven years later, it was the opposite. It was huge displays of Bud Light with a couple of cases of Budweiser on it. Yeah, so, yeah. Not so much that change. Wow. Yeah. So in terms of priorities, you know, Kiza was always just, you know, still towards the bottom. Uh, I think they did see potential, but I don't think they they nurtured it the way they could have and should have. One other little side note. um, Again, a million uh, focus groups and all that stuff. The women, again, I don't normally drink beer. I would drink this. The men, it was kind of the opposite. Like, ah, it's kind of a chick thing is how they put it. Literally, you would hear that, right? So I remember being in a couple of focus groups, all all males, and they were, you know, saying the same thing. Like, oh, you know, I expect, it's not what I expected. I didn't know it was going to be sweet. I wanted to taste the tequila, higher alcohol, blah, 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 right? So I remember doing a no-no and I literally disrupted the, came out from behind the the one-way mirror, disrupted the- the, uh, Focus group, yeah. Focus group. And I said, okay, guys- Based on what you're telling me now, I said, what if we came out with the sister or brother brand, if you will, and we lose a sweetener, you could taste the tequila, blah, 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 everything you just described. They even didn't like the color of the bottle because it, I mean, the label because it was yellow and they mm. found it was kind of girly, whatever. So they said we would buy that all day long, right? So this is really unheard of at Anheuser-Busch and most major companies. Without any focus groups other than than that experience, I literally went and talked to my boss. I said, I really want to do a more macho version of Tequiza. Within a couple of days, August Bush Four Sticks, uh, the, the son who was running the marketing at the time said, let's give it a shot. We developed a product called Tequiza Extra, black label. It looked more like a bottle of Jose Cuervo. Okay, right? which is huge at this time. Yeah, it, yeah. it did. It did. Uh, called again, tequila extra. It had higher alcohol. You could taste the tequila. Didn't have the sweetness. Everything that we talked about, right? And I remember we had a convention coming up, a national convention, and we weren't national at the time. We just had a few markets. We were kind of playing with it, and we were there. And we did some billboard. Our convention was in Atlanta, and we did a big billboard tequila extra. Right when the folks from Corona from Mexico fly in. They immediately call their attorneys, we're going to sue you, blah, 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 because we had the word extra in there. Our attorneys were already all about it. They said, they they sent them a letter back. They said, you know, there's about 34 beers with the word extra in it. So that wasn't going to fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I remember being at the convention as distributors are coming through, trying it for the first time. and, And Mr. Bush, the third, walks in. And I start talking to him. And it's not something you do normally, but I, I had a chance to talk to him. I said, um, Mr. Bush, I understand that the Grupo Modelo group is, you know, threatening to sue us. He started laughing and he slapped me on the back like, hey, that's a good thing. You know, he, he loved the challenge. Yeah. Unfortunately, I also knew by the end of the convention that that brand would not go into other other markets because you had a lot of these old distributors we were testing products like Doc Otis, which is a lemonade product. And they're trying sure. to, oh, my God, this is delicious. I could sell this all day long. They try the product that had a taste of tequila. Like, oh, my God, what is this? I, I would never drink this. Mm. I knew then that the distributors were not going to really support it. And sure enough, two months later, that that product was dead. Tell us a little bit about that relationship, because I, there's I think for a lot of our listeners who are either industry or adjacent to the industry, they might be familiar with 
the push and pull between supplier and you know distributor. But no one, or sir, many, most people that are listening do not know what it was like at that time in being on this, when the supplier is Anheuser-Busch, obviously you've got a lot of clout, but there's kind of a delicate dance that's going on there. Distributors still, even at that time, even when, you know, the company was under uh, Augie Bush III's sort of, you know, iron fist and, and he was really hard charging, whatever, distributors still had, they had obviously skin in the game and they had, they had ways that they could influence the market. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, to your point, yeah, he, he kind of ruled with the, with an iron fist and there was a lot of respect for him and, and fear, I would even say. Mm. Uh, but at the time we had um, equity agreements, so you couldn't, you weren't allowed to bring in competitive products. All that's changed since then, you know, the three tiers system, whatever legally it was challenged. And, and I guess now they can carry whatever beers they want. But at the time, it was always that implied threat of, you know, you need to play game. You know, you need to tell, you need to do what we ask you to do, or, you know, we're going to make your life a little bit tougher. Sure. But there was that mutual respect. But at the same time, the example I gave where when I kept hearing from distributors, mm, I don't like it. I just knew they weren't going to really get behind it. Yeah. I mean, if, if we gave it to them and said, you got to, you know, hit these numbers and meet certain dis distribution threshold they, they would attempt at it but again if they're not in convinced themselves they just knew there wasn't going to be a heartfelt real effort behind it and they read the writing on the wall and said okay i guess we don't need to go forward with this product yeah yeah where was tequila like foolproof tequila at this moment in all of this i mean obviously tequila has some like trace of tequila in it you can taste it but tell me a little bit about what the foolproof spirits sort of profile was in the American drinking public at this time. Obviously at AB, it was, it was an important enough thing that you guys decided to, you know, try to riff off it as a beer. What, what was the vibe for foolproof tequila at that time? It wasn't what it is now. The Patron, I, Patron might've been already in the market, but it just wasn't a big brand. Mm -hmm. But back then it was still, you know, people were doing, you know, they thought uh, Jose Cuervo gold was premium. You right, know? right. So it wasn't it wasn't what it is today, you know, where, you know, you see the numbers in terms of the spirits and tequila continues to grow. Sure. You know, 100 percent agave. And nobody knew what that was. So this was when tequila was still considered a relatively cheap buzz, you know, so it didn't have the respect that it does now. Yep. Yep. Do you think that that was part of what was sort of throwing the distributors off of tequila extra is the fact that maybe they had only encountered maybe cheaper tequilas or they thought of it as a down market product. They thought of it as a Latin product. Like, did you have any sense for what exactly they were reacting to or just I, I all of it? it? A, I think it was a taste itself. Yeah. yeah. I worked, I worked with the brewmaster when, when we first came up with the concept and she said, like, what do you want this to taste like? I said, I want it to taste like Corona with a shot of tequila in it. Mm -hmm. And it did have those cues. It really did taste like tequila. And let's face it, you know, people do shots of tequila because they don't want to really just, you know, sure. sip it and taste sure. it. Uh, so it wasn't an appealing taste per se. But again, those folks that when you got together with young guys that were, you know, beer drinkers and they, they love, they love that part of it. Like, Oh, cool. I could actually smell and taste the tequila. They thought that was a cool thing. Now you got to remember the guys, the average, you know, distributor, average age of the owner is probably 75 plus, you know, multimillionaire. Right. 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 You know, and, and there were a couple of occasions, not that one in particular where August Bush would have, you know, a national convention. We're talking distributors 
and they'd show like some new creative and some old guy, distributor, billionaire, whatever would raise his hand and say, I don't understand it or I don't like it. And August would literally say, good, because it's not meant for you. Now sit down. So, you know, he, so he was very aware of this dynamic and didn't just take their word as gospel, but their word still carried some sway in terms yes. of what yeah. you could expect from them to go out and rally the troops to go sell. Yeah, it, it was different to say, OK, you know, you're not a creative. You're, that's not your job. Right. You know, we've done focus groups with with our target audience. You know, that's what we're going off of that, not your opinion. But when it came to seeing the hesitancy from the distributors when they tried the product, like there's no way they're going to get behind this. We've got other stuff, you know, that we want to sell. So let's just focus on, on those things like Doc Otis, which ended up never releasing the light of day. Yeah. Tell me about what else was coming out of the, the what is what was the division called? The new product? like new, Just a new product development. OK. Department. So what else was in, you mentioned Doc Otis, like were there any other names that that uh, contemporary listeners might recognize or were most of these kind of uh, one and done, you know, brands that never saw much distribution? You know, one and done, but there were things like personal projects for the third. Like he kept saying, you know, why is it when when somebody gets older, they drink less beer? said, because they're always going to the bathroom. So he's like challenged the department, like figure out, how you can make a beer that doesn't make you piss as much. Like, okay, I, yeah, yeah. that's impossible. Sure. Well, we'll do that. So a lot of little, you know, side projects like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they were, you know, I think looking back at it, there were some products that I thought were pretty creative and again, ahead of its time, there's one called Peels, P-E-E-L-S. Yes. I don't yeah. think it was ever launched or maybe in a couple of markets, but we were all over the place. We were like, Hey, what's next? Let's be, let's get ahead of this. Let's, create something and uh a lot of it wasn't really fact-based it's more like hey this sounds kind of cool let's give it a shot most of those never saw the light of day yeah i was gonna ask like you know the insights that brought you guys to tequiza uh in you know 90s what it went into it must have gone into development in what 96 95 maybe and yeah. then you started testing it. yeah yeah um yeah. so mid midway through the 90s the insights that bring you to produce a tequiza uh in the first place seem relatively, to my mind, you know, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, seem relatively sound, right? Like you see, you see how well Corona is doing. You see how well tequila is doing. You know that there are business reasons that AB can't just get Corona, get a hold of Corona. So you've got to have, you've got to have an answer so you don't get outflanked. Like all those things seem to add up. You tweaked the liquid you know, uh, you got that feedback that the, you know, the sweetness was uh, not to people's liking. So you tweak the liquid, but that seems like a relatively like methodical process, but are there, were there other like inputs that you can describe focus groups? Like, were you guys looking at scan data? Like how much of this was, was vibes based, so to speak, and how much of it was, you know, engi- like reverse engineered from, you know, uh, uh, empirical evidence, I guess. Uh, you know, I, again, I think the, the potential of the brand, and we were talking about it earlier, you know, is ahead of its time, uh, which, which should have been a good thing, right? Like, let's just, you know, let, let's take advantage of that. But I think they just never went all in. Yeah. You know, they never went all in. We Who knows what would have happened if they would have put spent some real money behind it and done TV, for example. We never did a TV spot, you know. Takiza never got one TV commercial. Not one TV. We did. Wow. Okay. Radio yeah. and outdoor. That's all we did. And again, there just wasn't that commitment to the brand. And I, I mm-hmm. think it's a shame. As we were talking, you know, off camera earlier, I do think, however, 
it evolved into Budalite Lime. Yes. It's kind of the same taste profile without the tequila, obviously, but sure, uh, sure. the original tequila, limey, kind of sweet, you know, light. That's exactly what Bud Light Lime was. And but yep, that had yep. that had the support and the strength and the equity of the Bud Light name at that time. Sure, sure. And and that made a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it can't fail. They can't allow it to fail because it's a lime exactly. extension. So you have exactly. to defend it much more aggressively, even if you're not happy with the rollout or there are some bad early signals or whatever. You can't cut and run from something that's got the Bud Light name on it nearly as easily as you can you know, from something that says Tequiza and, and that's not going to yeah. affect any of the other parts of the portfolio. Yeah, I want to read some dates at you, you know, because I think this is this is part of the reason I find the Tequiza story so interesting and why, you know, part, why I wanted to have you on, on tap lines today, Edmundo, is because you're exactly right. This definitely tracks with sort of my understanding of the way the market evolved. I think Tequiza was a front runner on a lot of the trends that we now see you know, uh, having a lot of success in the marketplace. So some of the dates I want to read to you, uh, mm -hmm. Tequiza, uh, you know, goes away in like the early aughts. It, it sort of fizzled out and they, and they discontinue. I forget what its last year was, um, but they discontinue it in the early aughts. Um, in 2006, Anheuser-Busch releases Shock Top, which is brewed with orange and lemon peel. Um, in 2009, Bud Light Lime, a significant new entry for its time, according to Ben Steinman of uh, Beer Marketers Insights. And then Bud Light Limeritas, uh, which are like, you know, the, the, the FABs, the FMBs, whatever you want to mm -hmm. call them, um, in, in 2012. So you can trace a bit of, you know, I, does Shock Top get made in 2006 without Tequiza? Yeah, sure. Maybe they, maybe they stumble across that because that was directly an answer to Blue Moon. Um, you know, they were, I think AB was, was needed something to answer Blue Moon that Coors had cooked up, uh, in its pilot brewery, but you know, you start to see, and then obviously Bud Light Lime is a much more direct line, as you mentioned, but you start to see some of this institutional knowledge maybe manifest in different ways in some of the, the products that, that come after it. And I think, I forget, man, I should have, I should have looked this up beforehand, but the, I believe the brewmaster that worked on Tahiza with you also would go on to work on work on the Rita's, uh, the Rita's line. So, you know, some institutional knowledge and also some, you know, continuous personnel between, uh, you know, between one project and the other. So, yeah, you're right. Like the DNA, you know, sort of trickles out into the broader AB ecosystem. Yeah. And I do think the, I, I'm not sure if I would agree with the shock talk because to your point, you know, they're trying to do a Hefeweizen and, you know, sure. that, that was that was a little different. The one thing in common that Tequiza had with Bud Light Lime and Rita's was that sweetness. Right? Yeah, yeah. The idea that, you know, it's women are more likely to drink it and, and that kind of thing. So I think that was certainly the common thread. And I almost think in a in an indirect way, it had something to do with the popularity down the road of seltzers. Because it got to the point, I think, where people were like, hey, I'm drinking a six-pack of Rita's. Oh, my God, I've gained so much weight. Why is that? Well, they're each 300 calories or whatever. <laughs> that it, you know, people reacted the other way, like, okay, give me something that is beer-like, but no more than 100 calories, but similar alcohol, all that stuff. I think it might have been a reaction to, you know, okay, we've gone too far in this direction. There's a whole audience over here we're missing. How can we talk to them? Right. My assumption, I might be wrong, but 
Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see you can see it, though, right? It, it's plausible if it's not exactly how it went down. I would at least buy that explanation. It does seem to track, right? Like, first you get beer, right? And then you, you know, suppliers start to branch out. You know, Takiza is one example of that. You mentioned Zima, which is Coors product that's uh, um, sort of a infamous flop in the in the beer industry. But, you know, there's some branching out. Then, you know, you... you prime the American drinking public on, you know, these, these flavored malt beverages, these flavored alcoholic beverages. Uh, but then, yeah, to your point, we're like, oh man, like those things are sugary. We need now an answer to that. And like, all of a sudden you stumble across and, and it was a B, uh, more or less that stumbled across, um, what was called spiked seltzer at the time. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, it was one brand that was the brand name. Basically, um, this guy in Connecticut, they acquired it. They rebranded it as Bon and Viv. I think they acquired that in 2012. So like, yeah, it's, it, you know, there is some continuity there, right? Where like, you can kind of tease out the trajectory in that. I think if it's not an exact direct line, there's certainly some, you know, some indirect lines that lead from one to the other. Yeah, another funny little side note, uh, not to do with tequila specifically, but you remember when California Coolers was a big brand, right? Sure, sure, sure. And it's, it started to affect beer sales, right? Because people were drinking. So then Anheuser-Busch came out with a product called Dewey Stevens, which was a lower calorie uh, cooler. Mm-hmm. But really, all they really did, in the, even in their commercials, they were showing how uh, a California cooler had as much calories as a donut. So even though Dewey Stevens never became successful, it helped basically slow the, 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 the growth of products like California coolers. The people were, didn't realize, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's some cloak and dagger shit, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they're, they're a sneaky bunch. So that's a so that's like a great example of what it was called I think was called then and certainly now is a category killer right like either it's successful and okay now you got a hit on your hands or more likely the, it kind of skunks the entire you know segment and and puts a kibosh on uh, on a competitor's hot hand. Yeah, and again, I don't know how much that was intentional or not, but it, you know. It did. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It did affect right. California coolers and not, not in a good way for them. Uh, and Mundo, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we, we've gone from the mid nineties. Actually, we, I should have started with this, but I, again, I was just so desperate to get talking about Takiza. When did you actually start at Anheuser-Busch? I started in 1984 uh, in California. Back then they had what they called Hispanic area managers. So I dealt, I had seven distributors all up and down the central Valley of California, everything from Visalia all the way to Yuba city, you know, Sacramento, Merced, that whole agricultural area. And my role was to make sure that our distributors were servicing their Hispanic accounts properly, et cetera, et cetera. Started with that, uh, then became district sales manager for the brewery in New Mexico. I covered the state of New Mexico and and Durango and Trinidad and Colorado. Uh, Worked my way back to Los Angeles, where I'm from originally. I did the on-premise thing. I called on stadiums like Dodger Stadium and then the Great Western Forum at the time. Did that. And then worked my way into Hispanic marketing on the regional level out of uh, California and then got promoted to Hispanic marketing on a national level out of St. Louis and then worked my way into new product development. Yeah, yeah. Man, so you'd already been there for 13 years by the time 
to Kiza starts getting tested in 1997 in, in some small yeah, markets. Just, uh, yeah. Yep. About that. Yeah. And you've been for a lot of it, it sounds like you've been hand to hand, uh, either selling or, I mean, at the very least in the car pounding the pavement, like this was not like, this was just, you know, not that I don't think any of our listeners would have suspected this based on all of your anecdotes so far, but like, this was not just a situation where like you were, you know, incorporate in St. Louis and, and maybe, you know, like you didn't know what the customer looked like. You knew what the customer looked like maybe better than anyone at that time. Yeah. I, I remember riding in New Mexico when it was driver's cell. So they, everything was off the truck. Right. And being on a route in Raton, New Mexico at five in the morning. And then, um, you know, you would stop at an account and you'd basically ask them, what do, what do you need today? Right. Like, a, like, donut man or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I need 150 cases. So I'm helping the dude unload 150 cases. Budweiser at five in the morning, Raton, New Mexico. So I feel like I did earn my stripes. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like many times over. Yeah. So, uh, after Tequiza, uh, what's the, uh, what's the Edmundo path from there? Like what, what happens after that? Did you work on other brands? Uh, uh no, I ended up, I left, uh, in 2001, if I'm not mistaken. So while I'm on Tequiza, uh, right as we're getting ready to launch, a gentleman I worked with who was from Texas uh, brought this product to my office. It was a lime-flavored salt called Twang. It's a company based out of San Antonio. And I thought, you know what? When people do tequila, they do lime and salt. This is a cool little fun promotional thing, possibly. Yeah, yeah. We reached out to the owner, uh, Roger Trevino, out of San Antonio, Texas, Introduced myself over the phone, flew down to San Antonio. At the time, they maybe had 10 employees, rented facility downtown San Antonio. And I ended up doing a big national promotion with them. So With Tequiza. With Tequiza, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We actually branded the salt Tequiza Twang instead of just Twang. Yeah. And uh, it was available for retail. We did little packets that we handed out in bars. And the the cook was, uh, we called it Tequiza Two-Step. Uh, lick the salt, drink the beer. So we did yeah, promotion, yeah, yeah. like a tequila shot. You lick the salt, then you drink the beer. So that got him into about 700 distributors overnight. Fast forward 25 years later, or whatever it is, um, 120 employees, a plant in San Antonio, a plant in 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 Mexico, and and I'm now handling their marketing for them. That's so crazy the way uh, yeah. life works, man. So you went from. Tequiza, where you did a promotion with Twang, and now you're working on Twang. There's no more Tequiza, but a lot of what you learned on Tequiza, I assume, informs uh, all the stuff you do at yeah. Twang to this day. Yeah, yeah. and even even uh, the, the product I represent now, we've done partnerships with Dos Equis, we've done partnerships with Nicola Ultra, yeah, yeah, with Spirits, Tequila Spirits, we've done, uh, et cetera. So it definitely has helped me in terms of, you know, understanding that world and that market and how this can enhance the drinking experience. So that's really worked in my favor for sure. I love it. Uh, one question I didn't get to, I should have asked it before, but I'm going to ask it now because I am curious. Um, with the tequila infused in the, uh, in the actual bottle of beer, um, did you guys have trouble with like uh, TTB or uh, the tequila regulator or anything like, did anyone give you a hard time about that or no? No. And again, and I, I don't, I'm not a, a food scientist. So I couldn't tell you the process, but because it was, the tequila was used in the flavoring and the mm. flavoring was developed by McCormick. So it's, you know, legit, you know, experts yeah. in, in that field. 
right. it was incorporated into the flavoring. It from a legal standpoint, it was okay. So yeah, kind yeah. of brilliant on their part how they did that. But uh, yeah, it did actually contain real tequila in in the beer itself. That's such a weird like workaround there. I would think I know, that I, the yeah. I would never have thought of that. <laughs> And again, when I started on the brand, even though I helped launch it, you know, a lot of that was already, you know, the formula's already made, the name was already, you know, the packaging was already pretty much done. But yeah, I, I, I was very fortunate to have been involved in the rollout because that whole experience was just it was pretty cool. Yeah. And maybe, you know, something that, as we discussed over the course of this conversation was maybe before its time, uh, or I, I, would, I would say almost certainly before its time, and, and maybe didn't get the resources it needed to shine you know, in the way that it maybe could have, but, uh, but a, a fantastic story nonetheless. Edmundo, last question for you. Uh, and then I, I will let you go. You've gone the distance here on tap lines and we certainly do appreciate your time. You know, looking back on Takiza, we've talked a little bit about, you know, sort of how it's, it, it's legacy maybe in the AB uh, slash ABI portfolio, um, where you see those other, you know, the products that kind of look similar, kind of seem, seem to share some of the same DNA. How do you personally, look back on Takiza, uh, you seem to, you know, you speak about it very fondly. Obviously, this was a, a pivotal, you know, maybe not pivotal, but a big moment in your career. You managed this rollout. Like, uh, it didn't work out, of course, you know, the way you wanted to, but uh, you're still game to talk about it all these years later. Where, where, where does it, where is it in your story? You know, it was, again, I, I worked at Anheuser-Busch 16 years, and most of those experiences I had there were, were generally really positive, especially since, Anheuser-Busch was, you know, top of the game at that time, you know, Bud, but like, sure, and, sure. you know, Michelob was a, a viable brand. Yep. Uh, the uh, corporate culture was social. So that whole experience in general was just amazing. Uh, when I fell into new product development, it's not something I, I aimed for. It was kind of by accident. And that really happened when they decided to dismantle, you know, the Hispanic department and the African-American department and put people ethnic folks in, in the, into the different brands. Mm-hmm. Right. And when that opportunity came up, I really didn't want to go to Bud, Bud Light, whatever. I, I heard that the new product development thing was available and I thought, well, it sounds interesting. I really, again, didn't have that experience, but I learned so much being able to build a brand from scratch. You know, I, I worked on yeah, other projects yeah. as well. It was just really cool. And, and I got to manage the whole thing. I mean, it was, because I was technically a small brand, I did get to kind of do my own thing. And uh, so that was a great experience. Uh, again, I look back upon it fondly. I think it could have been a bigger brand. Uh, it could have still been around maybe, but that wasn't my call. Um, you know, I did the best I could at that time. And I, I think it, I did okay for being a rookie really at the time. Uh, but I always look back at that time as, uh, you learn from your successes and your failures. And it was one of those things. It was successful, you know, most profitable, you know, non-line extension brand. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, you know, I, I left. And a few years later, they they just they got rid of the brand altogether. So I don't look at it as a failure. I, I look at it as the time I was there, it was successful. Uh, it had potential to, to be even bigger. Um, I didn't have final say in, you know, how much money was going to put behind the brand or whatever. Yeah, but I, I do out of the 16 years I spent there, that was the best experience I had in the entire time I was with the brewery. Right on. I love that. Well, I said that was the last question. This is the last question. I don't know if you keep up with the beer industry news these days, but ABI is uh, in the process of shedding a bunch of brands 
Uh, they yeah. got, you know, they sold off a lot of their craft brands. They also sold off Shock Top. So I'm thinking, Mundo, what if you and I throw in a little money, you know, we'll put our uh, put our fortunes together, our respective fortunes together. Let's go make him an offer for Tequiza. What do you say? Why don't we, uh, we get the band back together here, man? You know, I've got some lotto tickets. I'm hoping for that. <laughs> is it Mega Millions or Powerball? Whatever that is, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm banking on it. Okay. I'm banking on it. But you know what? It's funny because I do think the environment right now is ripe for, it's perfect a, re- for it. a reintroduction, right? They did a lot of learning during that period. So whatever the issues were, could be, you know, the product could be tweaked to, to meet that audience. Uh, again, I, there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of your, your listening audience, you know, weren't around at that time or they're not yeah. familiar with the brand. So why not? Why reinvent the wheel? All right, folks, if we've got an angel investor out there uh, listening to this Taplines episode, you get in touch with me. I will put you in touch with Edmundo. Together, us three, the three amigos, will re- will resurrect Tequiza <laughs> and give it another shot at greatness. Edmundo, thank you so Beautiful. much for coming. It was uh, it was such a treat talking with you. Thanks, and man. Uh, enjoy the rest of uh, your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.